Well, hello, Wooddale Church. Good morning. It's so good to be with you. Let me take a moment and just say hi to all of you who are watching online, wherever you may be, as Pastor Dale said. My name is Brad Herndon, and I'm a little new around here. I've been here on staff for just a few weeks now, but it is an absolute thrill for me to get to be here. So just a little bit more introduction about me. I've been married to my wife, Allison, for 12 and a half years. We have four kids, ages three, five, eight, and nine, and I'm 90% sure I got those ages correct, so don't, don't check on those. But uh, if you, uh, if this past two years have been pretty busy and crazy in our household. In fact, if you've ever listened to the comedian Jim Gaffigan, he says, people always ask me what it's like having four kids. And I tell them, just imagine you're drowning. <laughs> and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> so that's kind of been our life for the past few years, but we love it. Our kids are the absolute joy of our lives. They're all back in Arkansas with my, with my wife right, right now. Our house just sold a couple weeks ago, and so they are getting everything packed up and ready to come up here. So yes, we have been in Arkansas for a while, uh, but it may not sound like it because I don't have that southern Arkansas accent, although you may still hear every now and then a y'all slip in there. That is basically the South's gift to humanity, okay? That is a great word. The word y'all and barbecue, that's the, the South's other good gift of humanity. So, uh, and then every, every now and then you may even hear me say all y'all, if I get really excited, and uh, that just translates to Minnesotan as you guys, okay? <laughs> so now we're on the same page. But I'm originally from the Midwest, so it's, I came up here longing for a really good winter, and I'm wondering where it, where, where it is, so. Uh, but uh, yeah, I got to know Wooddale in Minnesota several years ago during my time at Bethel Seminary, and it was during that time that I got to experience this church and the great legacy that this church has. In fact, I know firsthand that these cities are different because of what God has done through Wooddale. And since that time, I've kind of kept my eye on this church and seen the changes that you've been through and the incredible vision that God has put in front of you. And so now it is a thrill for me to get to be here and be a part of that vision with you and to be able to follow Jesus alongside all of you. And so just speaking of following Jesus, we are in the second week of a brand new series called The Jesus Lifestyle. And as Pastor Dale said last week, the point of the series is not that we would leave and go live lives like Jesus because that never works. We'll fall on our faces. The point is that Jesus would live his life through us. And hang on to that as we talk about this passage this morning. In fact, flip over to Luke chapter 10 and just kind of hold your finger there because we can't talk about Jesus and we can't talk about the Jesus lifestyle without talking about love, right? Not only because we're on the heels of Valentine's Day, although go ahead, just, just fess up. If you had a fantastic Valentine's Day, just go ahead and raise your hand. All right, a lot of people. Now, if you not so much, terrible Valentine's Day, you raise your hand. We got several. You're in the right place. We're going to love one another this morning. So it's good to have you here. But uh, not just because we're on the heels of Valentine's Day, but because we live in a world that's constantly asking the question, where's the love, Right? I mean, whether we scan the headlines of the newspapers or the headlines of our lives or whatever it may be, we live in a world that is starving for love, that is living in constant tension, right? Social tension. You might say we have a little political tension going on. We have racial tension. We live in family tension. We live in constant disagreement and discord and division. And so it's in these times that our world is desperate for love, not just any love, but a certain kind of love that we're going to learn about today. And so this is where following Jesus has to mean something. This is where the Jesus lifestyle comes in. Because as Jesus is going to tell us here in Luke 10, is that love is the very attitude that should define those of us who follow Jesus. 
And so pick up with me here in this passage, starting in verse 25. You can just read along on wherever your Bible is, or just listen to me as I read this to you. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a whole lot going on in, the, in these verses, and so let me just push the pause button for a second and, and unpack this a little bit. So first century Judaism, at the very center of society was, was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, 613 commandments in there. And so society was kind of stacked like a totem pole, and where you fell on that totem pole was basically based upon how well you knew and kept those commandments. And so at the top of the totem pole were those people who prided themselves, keyword, prided themselves, and knowing and keeping these commandments better than the rest of the people. And because of that, those people at the top felt like God loved them more. At the bottom of the totem pole were those people who had just given up trying. They'd given up trying to live that kind of life, and they'd given up that God even loved them. And so along comes Jesus, and he becomes quite the celebrity young rabbi here because he has this radical message that God loves everybody, everyone on the totem pole. And not everyone loved that message, especially those people who were at the top. And so one of those guys was an expert in the law, basically a lawyer of the Old Testament. He knew the Torah frontwards and backwards. And so he comes, Luke tells us, on one occasion, meaning that there were other occasions. In fact, we know that from the other Gospels. He came on one occasion to test Jesus, which is another way of saying to trap Jesus, to get Jesus to go back on something that he had been teaching. And so he asks him this question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he prided himself in being able to do things that would inherit things, that would inherit the love of God. Now, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus for that question to bother you because the basic rules of inheritance don't work that way. You don't do anything to inherit anything. You receive an inheritance simply, simply by being in relationship to something or someone, and that inheritance is a gift to you. And so it begs the question, how's Jesus gonna respond to this question? Well, Jesus, he doesn't bite, okay? In fact, he sees what this lawyer is doing, and so Jesus responds with a question of his own. He tells this lawyer, he looks him in the eye and says, well, what is written in the law? You're the expert, Jesus says. What do you make of it? How do you read it? Which is another way of saying, how do you live that out? And the lawyer responds to him. He quotes from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is something that Jesus himself said in another account. Jesus looks at him and says, you got it. A plus, nailed it, good job. So now just go do that and you're good. But even as Jesus says that, it's a little tongue in cheek. It's saying, yeah, if you can do that all the time, every day, well then you're good. Then you'll inherit the kingdom of God. And so the lawyer is far from satisfied with Jesus' answer. He didn't really appreciate his sarcasm. And so Luke tells us that he wanted to justify himself. If you're the kind that likes to write in your Bible, you might highlight that or circle that word justify. And so he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, to justify himself in a Jewish sense was to say that, that, to make sure that he knew, that everyone knew that he was right. Not just right, but he was righteous in the particular way that he lived out these rules. See, when you build your entire identity on your ability to follow the rules to the T, well, then you know inside your gut that you can't really follow all of them, so you need an exception. You need a shortcut. You need a pass. Like a good lawyer, he was asking Jesus, now where's the loophole in the law? right? Who is my neighbor? One of the best lawyers I know is my five-year-old. 
His name is Sam, and we learned quickly, early on, that if there was gonna be a way around something, Sam was gonna be able to figure it out. So at dinner one night, several weeks ago, we were sitting at dinner, and I could tell that Sam was not that happy with the food that was on his plate. And so he was sitting in his chair, and he kind of looked at his food until about halfway through the meal, he'd been very quiet, and he said, Dad? I said, yeah, bud. He said, do I have to eat my dinner? I said, yes, Sam, you have to eat your dinner. He wasn't very satisfied with that answer, so he just kind of sat back in his chair, and I could tell that he was looking at his plate and thinking, and his eyes fell on the chicken, and then they moved over to the rice, and then they moved over to the broccoli. And that's where his eyes just sat for a few seconds, until finally he said, Dad, yeah, bud. I said, do I have to eat all of my dinner? Basically, he was saying, which part of my dinner do I have to eat? Which part of my dinner do I not have to eat? Because Sam, like the lawyer, was looking for the loophole in the law. He didn't want to have to follow all of the command, just like the lawyer didn't want to have to love everybody. So the lawyer asked this question, who is my neighbor? He was asking, who isn't my neighbor? And see, we get that too. I think we are always, there's, if I were to ask all of us, we would all say that there's someone in our life that we struggle to love, that we struggle to show compassion to, to be kind to, to be gracious toward. In fact, for you, it might be someone in your family. It might be someone in your workplace or in your school. It might be your actual, literal neighbor. It might be someone in your Facebook feed, and you don't want to unfriend them, but every time they post something, you kind of cringe, and you struggle to be compassionate with them, right? But we don't just struggle to love individuals. We all struggle to love entire groups of people. And these are more subtle ways that we struggle, but we struggle to love people who make different amounts of money than we, than we do. We struggle to love people who spend their money differently than we do. We struggle to love people from different neighborhoods, from different races. We struggle to love people who have different sexual preferences. We struggle to love people who cheer for professional football teams from eastern Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't know who it is for you. It could be entire groups of people. It could just be individuals. But we all have people that we struggle to love. We all have people who are the broccoli on our plate. And so we all ask that question, do I really have to love them, just like the lawyer? And so how does Jesus respond this time? Well, not with a question. Jesus actually tells a story, a story that is so filled with meaning. Jesus had this incredible gift that he would come up with these stories that were so packed with meaning that you would continue to think about these things for days to come. And they would explain the way of God. And so the, the story that he shares, the parable is what we call it, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And even as I say that, we all know that story. You don't have, even have to have been in church to know some pieces of this story. And because of that, when we hear the story, you know, we, it's not nearly as shocking or scandalous as it was to the people in the first century. When we hear this story, it's familiar and comfortable to us. And we put it on the same shelf as the three little bears, right? Or the three little pigs. I'm getting my nursery rhymes mixed up here. So we, we, we miss out on just how scandalous this was. But when Jesus told this parable, it would have turned the world upside down of anyone who was listening. So as you listen to this parable today, listen through those first century ears and listen in order to be shocked and surprised at what Jesus does. Okay, so the story goes. Starting in verse 30, in reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Let's pause there just for a second because this is the opening scene of Jesus' story. Right off the bat, we're barely into this thing and a man is attacked, robbed, stripped, beaten down, and left on the side of the road. This is like the opening scene of an episode of CSI, right? 
That's the context of Jesus' story. And he says a man was on a road from Jerusalem and Jericho. This would have been a really famous, well-known road, a 17-mile stretch that would go from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And people would have known this road because robbers would hang out alongside this road because it was so steep and sharp turns and had even caves alongside of it. And so thieves and robbers would hang out there in order to attack people who were coming by. It was called the Way of Blood. How's that for a nickname for a highway? So everyone would have known about this road. You would never travel this road unless you had to, and you certainly would never do so alone. That's the context of the story that Jesus is telling us. And now he's gonna introduce us to three characters, which was a common technique in the day in order to contrast who gets it right and who gets it wrong. And so as we meet each of these characters, pay close attention to what they do. And now a priest, in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now let's get to know these characters a little bit. The first two, a priest and a Levite. These guys are at the top of the totem pole. These were the religious experts, the most righteous people in the land. If anyone was gonna, if anyone was gonna get it right, it was gonna be these guys. And so the priest, he's walking down the road. Now I know we're kinda hard on these guys. Let's just take a minute and maybe give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here. Let's get to understand maybe what they were going through that day. The priest, if he was coming from Jerusalem, well he was probably at the temple where he was going through the ceremonial ritual cleansing. He's walking down the road, he sees a man laying possibly dead on the side of the road. Now even though the Old Testament was clear that you should show mercy to those who are in need, the Old Testament was also clear that to touch a dead person would make you unclean, Numbers 11. And so he's wrestling with that dilemma and he thinks, you know what, I probably should help him, but I'm gonna have to go all the way back to the temple, go through the ritual cleansing again, come back, and that's a lot of work for someone who's probably dead anyway. Someone else surely will be coming along and they can help him. So he keeps going. Next guy, a Levite. He's a religious leader too. He doesn't have all the same restrictions as the priest does, but as he's walking along, he's probably going somewhere important to do the religious important work of God, and he probably had people waiting on him. So he sees the man on the side of the road, and he says, this is gonna take some time. Surely someone else is gonna be coming. They'll follow the commandment to help them. I'm gonna go do the work that God has called me to do. Now at this point, Jesus has his listeners on the edge of their seats. Because they're thinking if the two most righteous religious people in the land, the two people who know the rules and the law best, don't help this guy, then who will? Well, if the lawyer, you're thinking the next guy down the road is going to be what? A lawyer, right? Because who knows the law better than the priest and the Levite? But no, Jesus turns their world upside down. He goes for the least suspected, most surprising person in the land, a Samaritan. And even as Jesus said that word, his Jewish listeners' blood would begin to boil because there was no one in the land who was more hated, more looked down upon, more cast out, more set apart than the Samaritans. We think of them as good, but the Jews hated them to their very core. And the Samaritan, their own enemy, decides to help the Jewish man on the side of the road. It's Jesus' way of saying, you wanna know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is anyone who crosses your path. Anyone? Anyone even the person that you hate the most, even the person that is most different from you, that's who you're called to love. Now, even as Jesus was saying this, he knows 
that every single person listening and all of us too have a little bit of lawyer in us. And so if there's no loophole in the law, if we're called to love everyone, well then the next place we go in our minds is, well what's the minimum I have to do to love them, right? What's the least amount I have to do just to check that box, to follow that commandment and still be good, to still preserve our status? And so Jesus says, loving in that way is not an option. In fact, that's the kind of love that the world is used to. It's a cheap, convenient, easy, shallow love that we've all felt and that our world is comfortable with. But Jesus says it's gonna go deeper. In fact, I love a quote by another lawyer, a 21st century lawyer, an American this time named Bob Goff, who wrote a phenomenal book called Love Does. And he contrasts these kinds of love, these kinds of loves, and he says, the world can make you think the love can be picked up at a garage sale or enveloped in a Hallmark card, right? But the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. It operates more like sign language than being spoken outright. Love does. I love that. Love involves sacrifice and presence. That's a love that our world is not used to experiencing. That's the kind of love that the Samaritan demonstrated. It wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just an emotion. It wasn't just a card. It was love that actually moved on someone else's behalf. And so as we look at the Samaritan and consider that, he shows us a few things about the kind of love that we're called to live out, the kind of love that should define us. And so let's talk about these things. First thing we see in the Samaritan is love sees with compassion, not convenience. Love sees with compassion, not convenience. See, when the priest and the Levite came along, each of the three characters, the text says they saw the man on the side of the road. You can look back and see that in the verse. But the priest and the Levite keep on going because what they saw was an inconvenience. What they saw was a problem. What they saw was an interruption to what they really had their eyes on, which was themselves. And we get that too, we've all felt that. It be the coworker that you have in your office who just wants to chat when you're trying to stay focused. Or maybe they need a little extra help but you really have something else you'd rather be working on. It's the person with car trouble or who needs their windshield scraped but you're late to something. It's the child that you're tucking in at night who needs just one more book read. And as a parent, you're ready to hit the light switch, clock out, and hit the couch for some Netflix. <laughs> In fact, a friend of mine posted this on Facebook a while back, and I thought it was so true, any of you who are parents. At bedtime, my children turn into dehydrated philosophers who need a hug. <laughs> you know, really? You had all day. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was tucking one of my, a couple of my boys in, they share a room, and from the top bunk, as I'm hitting the light switch, my son Gus says, Dad, What's the Trinity? <laughs> so don't worry about it, we'll talk in the morning. <laughs> so whether it's the people in our home, the people in our workplace, just the people in our world, we all, have strugg we all struggle to see people as inconveniences. We say, that I'm gonna let them be someone else's problem to solve. But the Samaritan, when he comes, he sees, and the passage tells us that he felt compassion for him. Some of your translations will say that he felt pity for him, and because of that, we kind of get lost in what those words mean. We think of compassion and pity just as kind of feeling bad for the guy. But what we see in the Samaritan is it wasn't the kind of compassion that just feels bad, it was the kind of compassion that actually did something, that moved on behalf of this guy in need. Jesus would have had a word for this kind of compassion. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. It's the kind of love that runs gut deep, that breaks your heart for something, that sees someone suffering and is willing to suffer with them, that causes you to change course and do something differently. Jesus was always looking at people with this kind of compassion. In fact, in Matthew 9, it says that Jesus saw the crowds 
and had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 10, Jesus is standing in front of another pretty young, religious, arrogant guy, and it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him, verse 21. Luke 15, Jesus is telling one of his most famous parables, in fact, probably his most one, the prodigal son. And it says, when the prodigal son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So much so that what did the father do in that moment? He ran. He ran out to meet his wayward, rebellious son and embraced him. Jesus is always seeing people with that kind of compassion. You know what we don't see in Jesus, what we never see in Jesus? Hurry. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was always busy, but he was never in a hurry? Wouldn't you love it if people described you that way? I know they don't describe me that way. In fact, John Ortberg talks about this and says as much. He says that love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and that's one thing that hurried people don't have. We know that's true, right? We felt that, what it's like to be loved when someone is constantly looking at their watch or you know that they have something else they're trying to get to. And we've done that to one another, too. And so what would it be like if we got to the end of our day and we just took a moment and checked ourselves and said, God, where was hurry in my day? Because where there was hurry, I was, I was missing out on moments to love and possibly to be loved. So love sees with compassion. The other thing that love does is love moves toward, not around. Love moves toward, not around. Because when we see the priest and the Levite, and it says that they saw the man on the side of the road, it says they kept on going. Now, the thing about this road, remember, is this is not a wide path. This is not a multi-lane highway like 35W or one of the highways that we drive across town. This is a narrow path. This is more like the running path around Calhoun. So in order to walk past something, you would have to walk around it. You would have to change course, or you might have to even step over this guy in the side of the road. And so it begs the question, how is it the two people who claim to know the heart of God actually walked around the heart of God? And that's a challenging question, not only for the priest and Levite, it's a challenging question for you and me. Because I bet we've all, if we were honest with ourselves, have had two, three, four mom moments all across the past few weeks where we've had walk around moments. You know, I had, I had two in one day. This week, as I was writing this message, hello, I'm one of your pastors. <laughs> I was getting ready to meet one of our life group leaders. I didn't want to be late. I was walking out the front doors of the Edina campus, and I saw that a woman had pulled up, getting ready to deliver a whole lot of things. Her trunk was full, and I knew this was probably going to take some time, so I kept on going. I wanted to make a good impression. Later on that day, I'm driving around town. I'm getting ready to pull into an intersection where I see a gentleman on the side of the road holding a sign asking for help. And you know what I did in that moment? I changed lanes. I moved away from the guy so that I wouldn't feel so guilty and pressured into having to give him money. And in that moment, I started justifying it. I started making excuses. I started saying, you know what? I don't really have any money to give him anyway. Or even if I, even if I do, it probably isn't enough to help him. He needs more than I can give. You know what, or even if I gave him money, I don't know how he's gonna spend it. Or maybe it was his own decisions that got him in this place. And so I'll let someone else worry about him. And in that moment, I was moving away from the heart of God. And we constantly have to ask ourselves that question. Are we walking around people, or are we walking toward them? Am I willing to let my life be complicated by the needs of others? Because that's what love does. Third thing love does that we see in the Samaritan 
love gives no matter the risk. You look back at what the Samaritan did, it was no easy thing. We all think love is easy, and then you try it. And you realize love involves sacrifice, love involves presence, love does a whole lot of things. And so look at what the Samaritan did on behalf of this guy on the side of the road. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them. He put the man on his own donkey, meaning that he probably walked the rest of the way himself. He brought him to an inn and he cared for the man. And then in the morning he told the innkeeper, look after him, here's my credit card, I'll be back to pay anything more that he owes. You know what we don't see that the Samaritan did? He didn't give him advice. He didn't give him judgment. He didn't say, you should have known better than to walk this path alone. He didn't say, here's my phone number, call me if you need anything. He didn't say, I'll pray for you and keep on going on his way. Because that's the kind of love that isn't willing to risk. That's the kind of love that tries to love from a distance, but real love is willing to step in. Real love is willing to get a little dirty. Real love gets into the mess of others' lives, but we can't do so without being willing to risk things. The Samaritan, he risked his schedule. You know, think about this. He stayed up with him all night caring for him. This would have dominoed the Samaritan's entire week. It's a, he, he risked his stuff. You know, where did he get the bandages from? He probably ripped apart his own clothing. It says that he poured oil and wine on this man. Where did, the, the oil and wine would have helped the wounds, but you know where else we see oil and wine? In the temple. So you know who else would have had oil and wine on them to help this man? The priest and the Levite. But they weren't willing to risk those things. He risked his stuff, he risked his schedule, he risked his safety to get off his donkey and help this man, would have placed himself in harm's way, he could have been attacked by robbers himself. He risked his reputation, think about it, he's getting to wherever he was going late, so his wife, his coworkers, his boss, they would have said, where you been? He said, I'm sorry, I saw a Jewish man on the side of the road and I had to help him. And they would have said, you did, you did what? You helped a Jewish man? You helped the enemy? What kind of Samaritan are you? Because that's what love does. Love risks things. Love is willing to cross boundaries. It's, it's willing to cross racial boundaries. It's, it's willing to cross political boundaries. It's willing to cross physical boundaries in our city or in our world. Because love is willing to go, embrace, and love is willing to risk. And so at the end of this story, Jesus looks at the lawyer and asks him the question of the day. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now we don't see the, the, the lawyer's response in this moment, but you have to wonder what he did with this. You have to wonder what he was feeling, right? Was he angry? I mean, he just kind of had gotten shown up by this young rabbi, Jesus. Was he angry that the hero of the story, story wasn't a lawyer, it was his very enemy, the Samaritan? In fact, you look at his response, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He said, the one who had mercy on him. That's kind of a, that's kind of a cop out. Maybe he was angry, maybe he was ashamed. Maybe he was standing around people in that crowd that he himself had walked around and not shown love to. So he felt guilty. Maybe he decided in that moment, you know what, I'm gonna double down, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna show everyone here that I can love like the Samaritan, I can do this, I can love better than the Samaritan. So, Because that's when Jesus says, go and do likewise. That was Jesus' point, right? That we would try harder, that we would do better? Isn't that the point? Or is it? Because the brilliant thing about Jesus' parables is what we think they mean isn't always the deeper point that Jesus was getting at. Jesus knew the heart of this self-righteous, arrogant, religious guy. And so we can't help but listen to this story and ask the question, well, which character points to me? 
And we think about all the moments when we've walked around people and not shown kindness or compassion, and we know I'm a lot like the priest and the Levite. And in that moment, we get filled up with all sorts of shame and guilt. And we say, you know what, there's been a couple moments when I've been like the Samaritan, but I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna do better, and I'm gonna be more like the Samaritan like Jesus told me to. But if that's where we're loving from, from shame, if our love is coming from guilt, if our love is coming from trying to outdo one another, to prove someone wrong, or just because the rules say so, well then you and I won't make it to the parking lot before we fail, if that's where our love is coming from. See, the question isn't which character points to me, the question is which character points to Jesus. That's what he's doing all along in this story. And there's one character in this story who's coming along and who, feel, and who moves not out of shame or guilt or because the rules say, ho, say so, but moves out of sheer, sincere, gut-wrenching, deep, visceral compassion, enough to get off his donkey, go to the man in need, tear up his own clothing, and embrace this man and rescue him from the evils of this world. Jesus, church, is the Samaritan. Jesus is the good Samaritan, which means as Jesus is telling the story, he's not answering the question, what must you do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is answering the question, what has been done for you so that you can inherit eternal life? See, the thing we have to get in order to demonstrate this kind of love, in order for the love of Jesus to be seen through us, is this right here. Say this with me, church. Let's say this together. Love begins when we see how much we've been loved. Now look at that, because we have to get this. We have to see how much we've been loved. Because when Jesus looks at this lawyer in this moment, this self-righteous, arrogant lawyer, who thought he could do it all, Jesus was looking at him with the same eyes of compassion that Jesus looked at every other person that he saw. The same heartbreaking, gut-wrenching eyes of compassion that he looks at you with and that he looks at me with. Because I know right now in this room, we fall all over that totem pole. Maybe not in an Old Testament sense, but there are some of us, and I'm one of them, who pride ourselves in knowing and being able to keep the rules, who have gold star Sunday school attendance, who do everything, check the box, and, and I struggle to think that God loves me more because of it. But we also have people who are at the bottom who have somehow walked in here and have found themselves at the bottom of the heap and who have given up trying and have given up hope that God even loves you. And we all need to know that in this moment, Jesus sees us with the same eyes of compassion. You see, the character that points to you and me is the one guy in the story that we never notice. It's the guy laying on the side of the road who's half dead, beaten up by the evils of this world. And Jesus came, he sees you and me with compassion. He moves toward us, he doesn't walk around us. And he gave it all, ultimately risking himself, giving himself, so that we could see how much we've been loved. And when we get that, then we're not loving out of shame or guilt or because the rules stay so, then we're loving out of sheer gratitude. And that's when a movement of love begins to flow through us. That's when love, the kind of love that this world is aching to experience flows through us to our to our homes, to our neighborhoods, and even to our cities. In fact, as I was flying into the cities a couple weeks ago, I was at a conference with some of our pastors, and I couldn't help but see this and take a picture of it. We were crossing over the Minnesota River, and you could see the entire Twin Cities across the skyline, and all of the neighborhoods, and all of the areas, and all of the lakes and rivers dissecting the city. And as we were coming in for our approach, we took a little left turn right over the Eden Prairie campus. You could see the steeple. And I saw all the neighborhoods scattered around this campus. And then we veered north 
brushing across the Minneapolis skyline and seeing Loring Park there and all of the activity around it on that Friday afternoon. And then we turned back in toward our approach from the north, flying over Edina and Richfield and all of the homes and schools that were scattered across those neighborhoods. And it was in that moment that God was saying to me and to all of us, Wooddale Church, these are the neighbors that I've put in your path. These are the people, your neighbors, that I'm longing for you to go and do likewise to, who are longing to experience this kind of love, who need to know that compassion, that chesed love of God. But the only way that our cities are going to experience the love of God is through those of us who have experienced the love of God, right? And so we have to get this. That's when the Jesus lifestyle happens. That's when our cities change. That's when we change. And so in order to see that, we're gonna go into a time of communion. When we remember and when we see physically how much Jesus has loved us. That Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us like this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still helpless and unconscious on the side of the road, until that time when we wake up and find out that we have been loved and rescued from this world by our own enemy, a love that we didn't do anything to deserve or earn. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so a communion is simply a time when we remember that Jesus is the hero of the story, not just of the story. He's the hero of our story. So let me pray for us, and then we'll go into this time together. Lord, we thank you so much that right now we can know and we can see that we are caught in your gaze. That that chesed love, that compassion is not something that we just read about, but it's something we can feel and know right now. So for all of us, Lord, would you keep us from feeling any shame or guilt in this moment? Would you keep us from wanting to walk out of here and just try harder and do better? Right now, would you just help us see what you've done? And would you fill us with gratitude in this? so that we can go and do likewise. But help us to see how it's been done for us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen.